Hello there, folks. Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Moore, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining me once again to take a deep dive into this interesting thing that we call the conservative media bubble. Now, first off, I'd like to apologize for not getting this episode up sooner. I originally meant to record it around Tuesday or Wednesday of last week, but unfortunately, real life things had to take precedence, and so it got delayed. It is now Saturday, February 27th, and so most of the things I'm going to be covering in this episode happened either last week or the week before. So again, I apologize for this episode not being quite as timely as I would normally want it to be, but I mean, I made all these notes, I've been watching the bubble, and I didn't want to waste anything. So here we go. I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in to some of the things that happened in the bubble the last week, beginning with the death of Rush Limbaugh. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I am definitely not a fan of Rush Limbaugh. He's been around since I was a kid, basically just spewing hatred and lies and bigotry and just saying terrible things about women and minorities. And the fact that he was a wildly successful radio man is both completely insane to me and not surprising at all. And I think the reason for that is twofold. First of all, he came around in the late 80s, early 90s when shock jocking was really sort of coming into its own. You had people like Howard Stern sort of getting on the radio and saying things that you're not supposed to say that on the radio, but he got away with it because people let him. So you had Rush Limbaugh on the radio saying these wild, insane, terrible things. But more importantly, and number two, was that he really kind of gave a somewhat legitimate voice to those people who felt like they didn't have one or were too scared to speak out because they thought their beliefs might be ridiculed or made fun of or just straight up called racist or sexist or whatever. And so what Rush Limbaugh did when he came on the air in the late 80s, he gave people like this, people who had racist and sexist and wildly conservative views a voice that they didn't really feel like they had up until he was willing to do it and despite him being a nationally syndicated radio host he still said these things that were completely controversial and continued to stay on the radio anyway and it wasn't because what he said was terrible people generally agreed that that was the case but the reason he stayed on was the same reason that Trump almost won the presidency a second time, which was popularity. He was so popular that the radio stations literally could not afford to stop syndicating him. They were making too much money off of him, and so they kind of would just let slide all the terrible, nasty, sexist, racist things that he said. And if you're wondering what some of those things are, let me give you a few examples. In 1988, he wrote an article for the Sacramento Union called Undeniable Truths. And in this article, he said, and I quote, Feminism was established so as to allow unattractive women access to the mainstream of society. He later updated it to include, Women should not be allowed on juries where the accused is a stud. On gay people, he said, When a gay person turns his back on you, it is anything but an insult. It's an invitation. Back in 2007, he also aired a racist parody song 
about Barack Obama's popularity with white voters called Barack the Magic Negro. Also, in 2004 on his radio show, he said, I think it's time to get rid of this whole National Basketball Association. Call it the TBA, the Thug Basketball Association, and stop calling them teams, call them gangs. Oh, but it gets better, folks. He was a racist as far back as the 1970s, when he was doing a different radio show before he got big, and told the black caller, take that bone out of your nose and call me back. He even extended that racism to the issue of slavery, saying in 2013 on his radio show that if any race of people should not have guilt about slavery, it's Caucasians. The white race has probably had fewer slaves and for a briefer period of time than any other in the history of the world. Not to mention his whole feud with Donovan McNabb, basically saying that the only reason he was getting as much attention as he did was because he was black, and if he wasn't black, he'd be just another football player. So these are just a few of the many examples of Rush Limbaugh over the years being openly and unabashedly racist, homophobic, sexist, and pretty much any other ist you can pull out of the book. So if you didn't know before, you know now. But if you look at the way the bubble covered his death, it was as if basically a president had passed away. Fox, the day he died, literally spent hours both that day and the next, playing tributes, interviews, and highlights, and basically lamenting the passing of a titan and such an important voice for the conservative movement. And even Trump came out of hiding for the first time since he left the presidency to pay his respects to Rush Limbaugh on the phone on, I believe it was Martha McCallum's daytime show. So... Basically, what Trump said was that when I gave him the Medal of Freedom, half the room erupted in applause, not so much the other half. And with that, he went into a mini rant about how the Democrats weren't doing anything and how Biden was terrible and all this stuff. But the interesting thing is that it seems like he's still bitter and partisan nearly a month after leaving office about the fact that he actually had to leave. And I'm sure... When we get to his CPAC speech on Sunday, which hopefully I'll be covering in my next episode, we're going to see a lot more into his brain about his thoughts on it and what he plans to do about it. And so my take on this whole Trump thing is that he's not going anywhere. And I think CPAC in the last couple of days, and again, I'll get to it in the next episode, hopefully, has shown that Trump is not going anywhere. CPAC is all about Trump, and it seems like he's been biding his time until both the impeachment and COVID furor calmed down a little bit, which it seems to be starting to because the impeachment thing is over and done with, and now we have another vaccine that's been approved, so things are going to get back to normal even faster. They're saying maybe even by May or June, we can start having sort of normal-ish gatherings, which is great. I'm going to say, I'm very happy that that might be the case. But it seems like Trump was waiting for that to happen until he chose his big moment to come back into the spotlight. And I'm guessing that when he does, he's going to definitely explore, if not outright announce, the idea of creating his own political party. And I think a poll came out last week that said 
around 45% of Republicans would leave the GOP to go into Trump's party. Which, more than ever before, underscores the fact that the GOP is splitting in two. And we see it in the bubble, too. But going back to the issue of Rush Limbaugh, it sort of feels like they still want to coalesce around something in order to sort of maintain their political power. Because the GOP is well aware that they are splitting in two. But they seem to be going with the Trump wing of the party specifically because that's where all the political momentum is right now. But going back to Trump, if he does create his own political party, or maybe even if he doesn't, and actually they were talking about this a lot in the lead up to CPAC, Trump will likely come out with some sort of media outlet or social media platform. And when he does this, we will have reached the point of what I like to term bubbleception. We're going to have a bubble within the conservative bubble that the mainstream Republicans in the original bubble will not want to touch. Because rather than sort of skewing the facts and making up some of them, but mainly staying on what's actually happening, this new bubble that's inevitably going to be created, they're just going to make everything up as they go along. Don't like the facts of what's happening in the world? Biden looking like he's going to be a good, strong president? The economy turning up? COVID restrictions being lifted, vaccines in the arms of everybody in America, and things are starting to open back up. Eh, doesn't matter. Everything's going to hell because we have a Democratic president. Make up your own facts. Make up your own figures. It doesn't matter because they will all believe you. So if you can't tell, I'm more than a little miffed about that being a possibility and more than likely happening. But anyway, let's get back to the issue at hand, which is Rush Limbaugh. So Martha McCallum also called Laura Ingram on the phone during her show, who said that he helped save the Republican Party and gave him the most interesting nickname I've ever heard anyone give him, which was that he was a happy warrior and an eternal optimist. Now, I will say, like, I watched a lot of coverage of Rush Limbaugh on Fox the day that he died. And first off, I want to say... As much as I disliked him as a person and as a radio personality, what happened to him was absolutely tragic. I feel really sad that he had to die from lung cancer, and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But the interesting thing about the way that Fox covered him was that they actually spent, I'd say, more time talking about who he was off the radio than his personality on air. And from what they're all saying, obviously I can't back this up or provide any evidence because he was kind of a private person from what I understand. But everyone said that he was just the nicest guy, the most genuine, generous person you'd ever meet outside of radio. And of course, they didn't mention at all the racism or the homophobia or the sexism. But you can still be a nice guy and still be a racist or a sexist or a homophobe. You're a nice guy if the other person is white. You're a nice guy if the other person is straight. You're a nice guy if the other person's a man. But that doesn't stop you from having those beliefs and, in my opinion, from having to answer to those beliefs. But obviously, Fox didn't talk about any of that. They just said he was the biggest conservative voice in the history of radio. And going back to Laura Ingram, she said, 
you'd turn on the radio and you'd hear him talk about America and you'd say, you know what? This is America. And of course, Rush Limbaugh is from the Midwest, so that whole part of the country that is very rural and very conservative and, again, don't feel like they have a voice because they're in these small towns, and then they hear this guy basically saying everything that they want to hear and keep tuning in because they feel like they have a voice now. So in that way, Rush really did pave the way for the modern conservative movement, not just in terms of it being okay to talk about those things, but in terms of sort of packaging your message in a way that spoke to people who felt like they didn't have a voice. And Rush did that better than pretty much any other talk show host I've ever heard. He knew his audience, he knew how to speak to his audience, but most importantly, he did so in a way that really riled up the opposition and overall just earned him more notoriety because even people who hadn't heard of Rush Limbaugh would hear some of the things he'd said and more importantly, the left's reaction to it and say, oh, this guy's not afraid to say what needs to be said to those liberals. I'd better start listening to him. And so his notoriety and his fame just grew and grew. He thrived on being the shocking, bigoted jerk. He loved it. And he said in many interviews that he considered his radio gig a business first and foremost to find a bigger audience. And so that's why I sort of do actually believe that outside of radio, he was a really nice guy. Because for all his faults, he was not dumb. He understood what was making him successful. It was these controversial moments. It was these things that he said that got such a strong reaction from mainstream media. And so he just basically caught the wave and rode it for as long as he could. And in that way, he really paved the way for later conservative hosts like Tucker and Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck who really just sort of latched onto that red meat of the conservative base, told them exactly what they wanted to hear, and got rewarded handsomely for it. And so speaking of Glenn Beck, he actually came on Tucker Carlson that night, and of course Tucker spent pretty much the entire show just talking to people about how great Rush Limbaugh was. But on Tucker, Glenn Beck said that he changed the culture of America more than anyone except Johnny Carson. And in that respect, I actually sort of agree with him because before he came on, there was no such thing as conservative radio. And now if we look at the way that radio shows are done today, I believe something like nine out of the most 10 popular syndicated radio shows in the country are conservative talk. And in the distant teens, I believe, is the most syndicated liberal radio talk show, which I believe is Tom Hartman. But Glenn Beck had a very interesting thing to say about Rush Limbaugh. He said, and I quote, he was a crusader against the left who would slit your throats and leave you to bleed in the street. And that's pretty much classic Glenn Beck rhetoric for you there. Everything is a war. Everything is hyped up to the maximum hyperbole. Democrats are the enemy. We need to slit their throats and leave them to bleed. I haven't heard that in a while. I kind of missed it, Glenn Beck. You should say stuff like that more often. It would certainly give me more material to work with on this show. 
But anyway, moving on to Hannity, he said that Rush was Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Derek Jeter, and the whole dang New York Yankees team. And the interesting thing is that he also said that Rush paved the way for left-wing talk radio, not that they'd ever acknowledge it. And I would say that's sort of mischaracterizing the way that left-wing talk radio came along. Because, let's be honest, left-wing radio really hasn't been a thing. And I think the reason for that is because most progressives feel like they don't need a voice like Rush Limbaugh to amplify their concerns or to sort of hide behind when they have more controversial opinions because progressives, for the most part, don't really have controversial opinions. And I also don't feel like they need to trumpet the fact that they're progressives, that they're liberals. Conservatives, you always see, like, I'm a conservative and I'm proud of it. You don't see liberals coming out and saying, I'm a liberal and I'm proud of it. I mean, sure, some people do, but liberals don't have that innate desire to be noticed. They don't have that innate desire to be sort of amplified, for lack of a better term. So that's why I think left-wing radio never really took off the way conservative radio did. And as if to hammer my point home, Hannity, near the end of his show, went through a list of conservative values, basically like lower taxes, less government spending, that kind of thing, and saying, these are not hard to understand. And he's right. This is why conservatism works and why conservative radio works. Because their values are very easy to understand. They're very simple. They're very strict. And they sound really good on paper. People don't have to think about anything. Oh, we want lower taxes. Who doesn't want lower taxes? Everyone wants lower taxes. I wish I didn't have to pay as many taxes. Who wants the government to spend more money? I mean, they spend all the money they have now, and it doesn't seem to do anything for me. Again, everything, as I've said before on this show many times, with conservatives, everything is about what does it do for me personally. I don't care about everybody else. I don't care about the poor people. I don't care about the brown people. What is government going to do for me? As opposed to the liberals who say that the government should do the maximum amount of good for the maximum amount of people. That's not how the conservative mindset works. As far as the conservatives are concerned, and I went through this last week, it's the church's job to help the poor. It's the church's job to help the homeless. And the government shouldn't get involved in it. They should just have a police force and make laws, and that's about it. And that's why conservatism is so easy for people to get behind. Because there's nothing much to understand. You just have these few core values, and that's all you need. There's no nuance. There's no thinking required. Just believe. And it's no coincidence that the vast majority of conservatives are moderately or highly religious. And again, I have no problem with people being religious at all. What I have a problem with is the fact that conservatism is specifically designed to cater to these people who have that faith, who have that belief without any proof. And tying that in to conclude with Rush Limbaugh, he knew that's how these people's minds operated. He was well aware that just by saying these controversial things or 
just espousing these borderline insane conservative beliefs and most importantly appealing to their faith that he would get an audience and that audience would stay with him and grow exponentially and bring him massive wealth and success so again i'm sad that he died of lung cancer but in a way he was more of a con man than a radio host so i hope that that's the legacy he leaves on society at large but of course the conservative bubble basically treated him like a god so anyway moving on to the other big issue of the week which was that later in that week we passed 500,000 deaths from COVID-19. Now, to be fair, Fox did mark the occasion when it happened. I believe it was in the middle of the day. But that didn't stop them from unleashing their big three on the problem to try and shut it up and make it as Democrat-hating as possible. So we start off with Tucker Carlson, as we always do. And Tucker himself started right off bashing lockdowns and saying that the Democrats only want to keep us contained. He'd called it part of a larger movement of the liberal parties, and he was looking at Canada on this too, towards authoritarianism. And as I've explained on this show before, liberalism and authoritarianism are at completely different ends of the political spectrum. So you can't be a liberal and be authoritarian. You can only be conservative and be one. But anyway... He showed a bunch of videos of big, huge parties in Canada being broken up by police. He called it Orwellian. I call it damn good police work. And I say that not because I don't want these people to have fun or get together. The problem with these parties was that A, it was against the law to be doing it at the time, and B, they were not socially distanced, they were not wearing masks. And the problem, and a lot of the people at the party don't see that, isn't the fact that one of them might have COVID and they get infected. The problem is that when you go home and you're unknowingly infected with COVID, you might infect someone in your community who might infect someone in the community again. And that's how viruses spread, folks. Silently and without symptoms initially. You could be infected for up to a week almost and not know it. And yet you're still a carrier. There could be people at that party who didn't have symptoms and were carriers. And so the reason these parties get broken up is not because of some Orwellian narrative about not wanting people to gather or be together or share ideas or anything like that. It's a health risk. It is literally a health risk for that many people to be in that confined of a space at the same time right now. Until the infection rate of COVID-19 goes down, you can't risk that. Because you don't know if you have it. You might be spreading it to your grandparents and your neighbors and your community and not know it. So I just wanted to mention that because we are still in a pandemic, folks. And so many people forget that just wearing masks and social distancing from other people is pretty much enough to bring this thing back down to a reasonable level. But you wouldn't know that watching Fox News. In the entire three-hour block of the Big Three that I watched that night, there wasn't any mention once of 500,000 deaths from COVID-19. They did talk about the virus, to be sure, but only in ways that they thought would make Democrats look bad. Case in point, Tucker, right after talking about the breaking up of the parties in Canada, switched right on a dime to 
My Body, My Choice, and Bill Gates' pseudo-conspiracies. Actually, I don't even know why I call them pseudo-conspiracies. They are just conspiracies. And he went once again with that formula I talked about in the last episode. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but these vaccines need to be questioned. And as I said earlier, this is something that Rush Limbaugh really did pave the way for, was putting these controversial opinions, in this case anti-vaxxers, into mainstream media and making them legitimate. It's a thing now because of this formula that Rush Limbaugh started and people like Tucker have now perfected and are using to great success. He went on to say that masks amount to a suspension of the Bill of Rights and that they're polluting the environment because so many people are leaving them on the ground. He's trying to sort of co-opt an issue that the left finds important and say, look, we care about it too, even though that's clearly ridiculous. And as I said, Tucker really didn't want to talk about the pandemic because it's an issue that makes Trump look bad. So instead, he spent the rest of his show talking about the insurrection. And he made the argument, and I'm not joking here, that white supremacists weren't responsible for it and weren't armed. He showed pictures of people with flags and basically bags and cameras and saying, were these the weapons of the insurrection? I didn't see any guns. There were no guns in the Capitol. And my response to that is that being armed does not necessarily have to mean that you're packing heat. You don't need a gun to be armed. If someone walks up to me in a dark alley and pulls out a knife and says, give me your wallet, he's armed. I'm not. And yes, I am well aware that if I pull a gun out, I am better armed than he is. But that doesn't change the fact that he's armed. He has a weapon in his hand. It's the same excuse that policemen use to shoot black people. He was armed. I thought he had a knife. I saw him reach into his waistband. I saw a flash from his belt. We assume that people who are armed are dangerous. And so saying that flagpoles and sticks and shields and clubs don't mean that you're armed, if you have one of those you're not armed, is just stupid. People died, including one who was beat to death by people with these kinds of weapons. An improvised weapon is still a weapon. But anyway, my point is that Tucker characterizing them as not being armed is wrong. But probably the more important issue here is that he said that white supremacists weren't involved. What about the guy in the Camp Auschwitz t-shirt? He wasn't a white supremacist, right? And he's just one example of many instances of Confederate or pro-white or anti-Jewish or black paraphernalia that we saw storming the Capitol on January 6th. And so this leads me to believe that this is really part of a pattern that I've seen with Tucker since the insurrection happened, of him trying to shift the blame away from white supremacists and far-right groups. And what that tells me, and I should say that I'm just speculating here, but there's a lot of evidence pointing to it, that Tucker Carlson is himself a white supremacist and or far-right conspiracist. Now, I am well aware that Tucker could be, like Rush Limbaugh seemed to be, 
playing a character for his TV show who espouses these beliefs. But at the same time, he hasn't shown me otherwise. And every single time I watch him try and shift the blame away from white supremacists, he says things such as, why do the Democrats hate white supremacy so much? And why is the blame always on white supremacists? And he wouldn't be asking that question if he didn't have some sort of stake in the argument. He wouldn't be trying to shift the blame off of these groups who so undoubtedly deserve it if he himself didn't espouse their beliefs or actually support what they were doing. So that's just some food for thought for the now most popular person on cable media. And actually, he's going to start his own podcast soon, too. So I guess I'll just have to add that to the listening list for my sources for this show. So anyway, moving on to Hannity. He didn't talk about anything at all related to the pandemic, except saying that Democrats have been running things for a month, and it's been an unmitigated disaster. He also added that the Democrats are using the COVID crisis as pretext to pass a far-left wish list. And while I disagree with the far-left portion of it, I do agree that the Democrats are trying to use the crisis as sort of a stepping stone to add some of the things that they promised the voters to actual law. Case in point, of course, being the $15 hour minimum wage, which I hope passes, but I do not expect it will. But other than this one little minute or two tidbit at the beginning of his show, mentioning that COVID is in fact still happening, there was no mention of 500,000 deaths from COVID or any mention at all of the pandemic from Laura Ingram. Again, no surprise there. They don't want to talk about it because it makes Trump and the Republicans look bad. So moving on to the online sources, we find some very interesting things happening. When I first checked out One America, I had to actively search their website for simply listing any news about COVID whatsoever. And as far as marking 500,000 deaths from the disease, it was a single bullet point in an article I had to actively search for. And not only that, it was actually copy-pasted from a Reuters article. So it wasn't actually a One America news source anyway. When I went on Newsmax, the only mention that I had of COVID or 500,000 deaths is an article talking about Fauci saying that political divisions cause this many deaths. Again, a very interesting thing that you'd think maybe wouldn't appear on a conservative news source. But that one, like One America, was also copy-pasted from Reuters, and I had to actively search for it from Google. When I searched Newsmax's website from their site, I didn't find anything relating to this. I had to actively go through Google and specifically tell it to search Newsmax's site to come up with this. So again, it seems like they're trying to hide everything that's happening with the pandemic, but at the same time, when they do post something up relating to it, they just copy-paste from a real news source. When I went to InfoWars, I found nothing. Only an article from a month ago about how 31,000 people died in Biden's first week from COVID-19. Again, trying to shift the blame. This is something we've already seen before. No surprise. 
But Breitbart probably had the most interesting reaction to this from any bubble source. Because they had a story specifically about the milestone of 500,000 COVID deaths. And it had good information. It was well-researched. And it had lots of different contributors to the article. I was pleasantly surprised. I said, oh my gosh, is this actually a legitimate news article that I'm seeing on Breitbart here? And then I looked at the bottom of the story. Oh wait, it was actually a copy-pasted AP story. And by the way, I actually did have to search for this one too. Instead, when I did search for articles about COVID on Breitbart, I found an actual article from them talking about Biden's brain freeze gaffe moment when he said millstones instead of milestones. The article did mention that he corrected himself, but at the same time, the title is just 100% clickbait, and I guess my response is, why even make an article about this? People make mistakes talking all the time, and yes, I am aware that Biden is a little more gaffe prone than maybe the average person, but To say that this is a big deal and that it's newsworthy is laughable. It's insane. It's crazy. It's nothing that we haven't seen before from the bubble, but it never fails to amuse me. But the point that I'm making with mentioning how all these sites covered, or should I say didn't cover, the 500,000 milestone is the only reason they had anything on their sites at all is because they wanted to keep their status as, quote, news organizations intact. And they definitely don't want their viewers to see it because I literally had to search for it in order to find it. Sometimes I even had to use an outside search engine just to find these stories. They were not on their front page or in any section I could find. They were specifically made to be difficult to find for the average person. And my conclusion is that they didn't want to mark this milestone, this millstone, because they knew it wouldn't be as bad if not for Trump, and because marking it would make Trump look bad. So, as far as they're concerned, it doesn't exist. Unless, of course, something happens with it that makes the Democrats look bad. For example, the Cuomo story. And I could get into how they covered the Cuomo story, but... I think we already know how this story ends, so to speak. Basically just calling for his head, saying that this is the hypocrisy of the Democrats at work. And when this story broke about Cuomo, they were all over it for at least a couple of days. That's all they talked about. And even now, weeks later after it happened, they still refer back to it and still basically do everything they can to make the Democrats look bad when it comes to COVID-19. So that's it for the coverage or the lack thereof of the bubble in the COVID sector. So now I'm going to move on to the main story of this episode, which was the Texas freeze. Now, there are many explanations floating out there as to why what happened in Texas got so bad. And it could be global warming. It could be the fact that none of the power stations in Texas were winterized properly. It could even be that some of the energy companies chased profits over actually being prepared for a natural disaster and basically had to leave a lot of people in the dark just to make sure that the power didn't go out for months. 
There's a lot of that floating around right now. Unless, of course, you're in the bubble. And as far as the bubble is concerned, there was only one real scapegoat to blame for everything that happened. And that, of course, was green energy. As far as the bubble was concerned, the only reason that the Texas freeze got as bad as it did was because the state is increasingly reliant on green energy and wind power, and those things failed miserably in the winter storm. How did this happen, you might ask? Here's Tucker Carlson to break it down for you. So, unbeknownst to most people, the Green New Deal came to Texas. The power grid in the state became totally reliant on windmills. Then it got cold and the windmills broke, because that's what happens in the Green New Deal. You're without power. Millions are still without power tonight. Several has di have died. Now, the same energy policies that have wrecked Texas this week are going nationwide. They're coming to your state. So if Tucker Carlson is to be believed, the Green New Deal came to Texas before it came to anywhere else, which, by the way, is completely ludicrous because Texas is a very conservative state. And windmills actually make up, I believe, around a quarter of the state's power grid. So that's a far cry from being totally reliant on them, as Tucker would say. But my favorite part of this whole statement is that he attempts to tie it in with the whole culture of fear-mongering that we've seen throughout the bubble since I started this podcast, and that has become sort of just a staple of the conservative diet. The Democratic Green New Deal came to Texas and look what happened. We have no power now and people have died. But now it's coming into your states. Be afraid. I mean, it never ends with the fear and the attempt to control you through this fear. And I've probably said it before on this podcast, but there have been many studies that have been done that basically say that the conservative mind the, the part that deals with fear in the conservative brain is bigger than on the average person. So what this means is that a lot of conservatives could be conservative in no small part because their brains are more predetermined to react to fear than the average person. But it wasn't just Tucker that was pushing this fear and pushing this false narrative that green energy was responsible for the blackouts. According to PolitiFact, between February 15th and February 16th alone, windmills or wind turbines were mentioned more than 100 times on Fox News and Fox Business Network. The Green New Deal was mentioned more than 25 times. So it's very clear that they wanted to both cover up the real problem, which experts have since determined was due to a combination of the gas and coal and other regular power sources not being winterized and the increased demand for power due to the winter storm. But that didn't stop the conservative media from seizing the opportunity and jumping on a now iconic in conservative circles photo of frozen wind blades from the storm. Many outlets on the bubble, including Tucker and Hannity and Newsmax and One America, all jumped on this photo and basically said, this is why we had what we had. This is why Texas got so bad, because these wind blades weren't meant to work in cold conditions. And when they got frozen, the entire power grid went out. And because of this, it's the Democrats fault, because they're the ones that are pushing 
this narrative that we need to have more green energy. And of course, these outlets failed to mention that the story that went along with this photo from the Austin American Statesman said that gusty winds spinning unfrozen turbines along the coast were offsetting some of the power losses. (laughs) But of course, this is not what the conservative bubble is about. They're not about nuance. They're not about context. They just want to get to what bothers you. And what bothers people in Texas is that their power's gone and they want someone to blame. And who better to blame than green energy and the Democrats? And this shifting of the blame was evident pretty much everywhere you looked in the bubble during the freeze and afterwards. Here's a few of the headlines that I found. Frozen wind turbines cause blackouts in Texas. Real impact of the Green New Deal exposed. Winter storm cripples Texas's green energy grid. And on and on and on. Again, no mention of the fact that gas and coal power plants were the real ones that shut down for the most part and caused most of the blackouts. But nope, we got to protect our oil and gas and coal interests. Green energy is a disaster, said Newsmax. Ask the people in Texas how the Green New Deal is working out for them. And they even had the nerve to say on One America that this has nothing to do with the gas plants and coal plants that are also frozen. But to their credit, One America did actually have a very interesting human interest piece focusing on variable rate electric bills and how they impacted people in Texas during the blackout. So just real quickly, I'm going to go through what the problem actually was and how it relates to these variable rate electric bills. So the main problem that they had in Texas and why it got as bad as it did wasn't because of the federal government or the Green New Deal, as the bubble would say, but really because Texas has this insanely vehement, undying belief in deregulation. And because of this, their power grid is not on the federal grid for the most part. Texas manages and maintains its own power grid and it's mostly done by a private in-state entity called ERCOT. And agencies like ERCOT have been asked to winterize their power supply for years, including 10 years to the day since their last freeze, when in, I believe it was some sort of community meeting, they were told in no uncertain terms, if something like this happens again, you will not be ready for it. You need to get ready for it. But they didn't do it because they valued profits over the safety. They figured, oh, well, we're Texas. We never have to worry about the cold or the snow. It's never going to get that bad again. It did. And it got worse. So the way this relates to these variable rate electric bills is because Texas is not on the federal grid. They pretty much can do whatever they want with regards to how people get power. So the way it works in Texas is a lot of people pay a flat per month fee for wholesale electricity at constantly changing rates. So basically, you pay a flat fee and then you get whatever the going rate is for electricity at the time, which apparently can be pretty low because the state does its own electric grid. But when you have high demand, that price goes up. And it's funny because... The One America article says 
that some other states were actually considering this approach to energy to try and save people money. But obviously, they're not going to do that now after what happened in Texas. Because what happened predictably was because these companies didn't winterize or hedge themselves against the spikes in power that would inevitably occur when a winter storm hit, the rates for electricity went up by thousands of percent during the storm. Because electricity was in such high demand and because so many power plants were out due to the winter storm. As a result, a lot of people got electric bills for that month in the tens of thousands of dollars when they would normally be maybe between 50 and and $100. In San Antonio's largest power company, graciously offered to spread out these bills over 10 years. Needless to say, that idea didn't go over well. And now there are a lot of people who are genuinely and legitimately, in my opinion, pissed off that this could even happen. And they're arguing that they need to both nullify or drastically reduce these bills and put in place some sort of protection or hedge so that it doesn't happen again. And they're absolutely right. The problem wasn't the fact that these spikes happened. The problem was that these private companies hadn't prepared themselves to deal with these surges in power during the winter storm or the fact that there would be less power to share because their facilities hadn't been winterized. And as a result, the power companies are trying to pass their losses onto the consumer rather than paying for it themselves. And if you ask me, this is yet another example of what you get with true unregulated free market capitalism. The big power companies pass their losses onto the consumer and there's really nothing anyone can do about it. But the interesting thing was that the One America article that I read actually did sort of take that approach of saying, like, this is really the power company's fault and they are the ones that need to be held accountable. So I just thought it was interesting that in this huge unending sea of BS stories about how the Green New Deal is to blame for everything, I found this one very well-researched, very well-written interesting, legitimately good human interest article. And yet, even with this real and accurate story, if you look at the rest of One America, there are still lots about Joe Biden. He's hiding in his basement as millions freeze, and it's unclear whether he even cares at all or is going to visit Texas at some point, which, of course, he did, and he did. And there was no mention anywhere, of course, about either Ted Cruz trying to escape to Cancun with his family during the freeze or the fact that AOC and some of the Democrats in Congress actually raised more money for Texas than any of the conservatives did. But we don't have to get into that because the conservative bubble didn't get into that. Instead, One America had on an energy expert who said that green energy is to blame. He said, and I quote, it's really frustrating when the facts are so evident. Then what are they, sir? He then proceeded to go through them. 
he said that gas, coal, and nuclear were largely not affected by the winter storm. This, as we know now, is a complete lie. He then said that wind energy was down 92%. Also a lie. Also, the reason wind energy was down was because it wasn't winterized like everyone said they should be. This expert then went into a very interesting sort of sidebar. He said, and I quote, We are so blessed in America with tremendous fossil fuel reserves, we don't need to invent these new ideas. China knows coal works. China has a world to conquer, and they're staying with coal. Wait. First of all, you're saying that not only does green energy not need to exist, but that China is poised to take over the world with coal? (laughs) His argument, if you can even call it that, makes absolutely no sense when you apply a shred of logic to it. And unfortunately, I don't remember the name of this so-called expert that they had on One America, but I really hope that no one is seriously listening to what he says. Which, of course, they probably are, so we're all doomed anyway. (laughs) Moving on to The Federalist. They had a similar view. Their article said, it's basic math that wind farms were responsible. Then they went even further and tried to tie it into pretty much everything else that the liberal agenda cares about. Quote, There is this growing green movement, and you can see this is the power of the left. It's the same as the anti-race movement. It's the same as cancel culture. It's the same as the transgender movement. There is a strong leftist movement to say we have to shove green energy down America's throats, and people are buying it. Republicans are buying into it. Yes, we should have a big percentage of our electric grid come from wind when it works great, but what happens if it doesn't work? Well, I can answer that question for you. The same thing that happens to coal, gas, and nuclear when they don't work. Oh, wait. That's exactly what happened with this winter storm in Texas. And look what the result was. A lot of people were out of power for days, and we had tens of thousands of dollar electric bills. (laughs) Mmm, strong the hypocrisy is with this one. Moving on to InfoWars. They actually had, believe it or not, a decently researched, fact-based story about Bill Gates, the same dude that they're always saying wants to inject microchips into your brain through vaccines, debunking the argument that green energy was to blame. He said basically that there wasn't enough power reliant on it and blamed it on natural gas plants not being winterized, which I've already talked about. And then they actually laid out what Bill wants to do in a nonpartisan, well-stated way. Inconceivable! But, and this is a big but, it seems like it was all for naught. Because at the end of the article, which, again, was well-stated, well-researched, and pretty much neutral, there was a single line that read, Our planet's savior has arrived. And this was posted next to a link to a video called The Truth About Bill Gates. And of course, when you click the link to start this video, it's all a big tongue-in-cheek, sort of pseudo-satirical look at how Bill Gates is the new climate czar, but he knows nothing about climate change. Bill Gates says he cares about veganism and being healthy, but he says his favorite food is hamburgers. (laughs) And it just goes on and on about how Bill Gates is nothing but a big hypocrite, and he does not have your best interest at heart. 
It goes short, to be clear, of saying that he wants to inject microchips into your brain, but there's plenty of other evidence on InfoWars about that. But beyond the Bill Gates story, there's the usual, the Texas disaster was caused by the switch to green energy article, written by none other than Ron Paul. That's right, folks. The one-time presidential candidate has now been reduced to writing articles for InfoWars. In this article, he comments on the COVID tyrants that are the Democrats and saying that the authoritarian restrictions from the COVID crisis are partially to blame. It's just nuts. And he goes on to say that the temporary collapse of Texas foreshadows the total collapse of the United States. If Texas can't handle a bit of cold, what will the rest of America look like when there's chaos in the streets? He says that us having more power outages than other nations means that America's infrastructure is crumbling. And you better prepare while you can, because time is running out. This just goes back to the whole bubble mentality of you are constantly under attack, you are constantly in danger, you need to arm yourself, there are always people, and now the environment's out there to kill you, be afraid! So that's basically the coverage of the bubble of Texas's disaster in a nutshell. That the Democrats are to blame because they're the ones that force the green energy on us. And if you listen to Tucker, green energy powers the entire grid of Texas. And because that part of it failed, it was the Democrats' fault. And we need to be prepared for even more disasters, even more chaos, and eventually our streets crumbling into dust. Very upward-looking attitude from the bubble this week on current events. So with that, let's just go ahead and move on to the weirdest thing that I saw this week. So this episode's award goes to Newsmax, and in particular, one of their hosts, Greg Kelly. So as we know, now that Joe Biden's president, the conservative media is trying to find anything that it possibly can to make Joe Biden look bad or unpresidential, or in any way different from the squeaky clean, nice, sweet, caring, compassionate, old uncle kind of guy. But it seems like with stories like this, I think they might be taking it a little bit too far. And it seems that Newsmax and Greg Kelly in particular have stooped to a new low in this regard, it seems like not even the presidential dogs are off limits anymore. So without further ado, here is Greg Kelly's comment on Newsmax about Joe Biden's dogs. Did you see the dog? Let's get, I want to show you something I noticed. Doesn't he look a little, uh, little rough? I love dogs. But this dog needs a, a bath and a comb and uh, all kinds of love and care. I've never seen a dog in the White House uh, like this. I've, I remember Buddy, I remember Millie, I remember lots of dogs, but not a dog who seems, I don't know, I don't know how much love and care he is getting. Millie had like a staff and they really took care of her, very beautiful dog. This dog looks like from, I'm sorry, from the junkyard. And I love that dog, but he looks like he's not been well cared for. No, not, not <laughs> at all, well, thank you for having us. Uh, no, he looks very dirty and disheveled and uh, very unlike a presidential dog like uh, Millie or Victory or something else in the past in the, uh, in the White House. That's right, folks. The bubble is so desperate 
to find anything it can to make Joe Biden look bad, that they're going after his dog. His rescue dog, by the way. And I should say, anyone who doesn't take one look at that dog and thinks it's absolutely adorable is definitely going to hell. But in all seriousness, let's try and deconstruct what they're talking about here. So they mentioned Millie a couple of times, who was George H.W. Bush's dog, and how presidential it looked, as opposed to this mutt, this mangy cur, who doesn't look presidential and looks like it doesn't get enough love and care. And if you ask me, I think the reason they go into this is because they're trying to portray Joe Biden as not a loving and caring person as he claims to be and is. Basically, what they're trying to insinuate is because this dog looks so mangy and unpresidential and it doesn't get enough love and care, if Joe Biden can't give the love and care that his dog needs, what makes you think that he can give the United States the love and care that they need? If he's not caring for his dog and loving him the way that he should be, maybe he's just not that nice of a person. I mean, the implications are absolutely absurd, of course, but it's the fact that they were willing to stoop this low that just blows my mind. I can't, still can't even believe that they actually did a segment on Newsmax attacking Joe Biden's rescue dog. And yeah, some dogs are a little hairier than others. Some dogs don't look like show dogs. And I think, actually, if I remember reading about the story behind Joe Biden and his rescue, that one of the things that made Joe Biden choose that dog was because he was old and looked unkempt and he, you know, wanted to be the one to care for him. And if you ask me, that makes him even more of a nice guy than he already was. But you won't hear that from the bubble. It's all about just attacking Joe Biden's character however and whenever they can, even if it means doing something completely ridiculous. And so, as you might imagine, the mainstream media picked up on this and thought it was hilarious like I did and ran with it, just basically saying how ridiculous it was. And then Greg Kelly himself came out and responded to everyone saying how ridiculous it was that he was making fun of Joe Biden's dog. And he said... And I quote on Twitter, For two years, the media said Donald Trump was a Russian spy, and it was all business as usual. Meanwhile, I muse for a moment that Joe Biden's dog may need a bath, and all-out hysteria breaks out. Something's a little off in Joe Biden's America. So not only did he not apologize, he doubled down and gave very much Joker-like logic on why he was doubling down. When Donald Trump was a Russian spy, no one panicked because it's all part of the plan. But when I say that one little old dog needs to be cleaned, well, then everyone loses their minds. So congratulations to Newsmax and Greg Kelly. Your segment saying that Joe Biden's dog was unpresidential was the weirdest thing that I saw this week. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this episode of the Undercover Bubble Podcast. If you made it all the way through, I hope you enjoyed it. Don't be afraid to like, subscribe, and tell your friends. Hopefully, I will be back next week with an episode about CPAC and the Trump speech that I'm sure we're all looking forward to. Have a good one, folks. I'll see you next time. <laughs>